It's good to have you tonight. Let's, uh, let's bow before the Lord as we get started here. Father, it's always good to, uh, to be with other men that are heading the same direction and on the same narrow path. And it is a narrow path. Uh, we are thankful that you have pulled us off uh, the broad road that leads to destruction. Um, it, uh, it is narrow on this path. It is at times difficult but there is a path that is much more difficult. Uh, we uh, thank you for the privilege of having our eyes opened. And we thank you, Lord, that you have enlightened our hearts so that uh, we can see the truth of the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you have worked in our lives to draw us to yourself and to give us truth. And uh, that every day we have choices that are before us. And we want to be... Uh, we, we, we want to be wise men. We want to be men that, uh, that think carefully and think purposefully and think biblically. We just don't want to live uh, in reaction to what goes on around us, but we want to live um, with a purpose in mind and with the understanding that the invisible hand is always upon us and that the eyes of the Lord are in every place. Uh, you see our every move. You see our every thought. And, and Lord, we want to be men that are pleasing to you. And uh, Father, as we're going to see tonight, uh, we encounter different things along this trail of life. And uh, sometimes things are not as they appear to be at first glimpse. And these are times when we need great wisdom. So teach us tonight. Instruct us tonight. Give us teachable hearts Thanks for uh, uh, the ministry that took place here on Sunday. We, we pray, Lord, that those who, uh, who came, who would not normally be here, that the, the seed of the Word of God would take root in their hearts and that they would be drawn to the truth of Christ. Thank you for a church that stands on the Word of God. Thank you for a church that uplifts Jesus Christ. Thank you for the favor and, and blessing that you have given uh, to this body of believers. We understand fully that it comes from your hand. So we thank you for it. Uh, we thank you that the gospel is increasing every day. It's growing. It is, uh, uh, it is powerful. It is bringing people to yourself. We're thrilled to be a part of it. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. There is nothing uh, probably more frustrating uh, to a man than to be conned. If that's ever happened to you, you know the uh, futility of that kind of experience, and uh, you know the experience of kicking yourself. If you've ever been, if you've ever been used by somebody, if you have ever been manipulated, uh, if you have ever been taken to the cleaners, uh, you're not alone. 
guy named Charles Caleb Colton once said, there are some frauds so well conducted that it would be stupidity not to be deceived by them. <laughs> and he's right. There's an old English proverb that says, a clean glove often hides a dirty hand. Things are not always what they appear to be on the surface. And as we are tracking with Joshua and the people of Israel, as they have now entered into the promised land, that is exactly what they encounter in Joshua 9. And somewhere along our trail, we will all encounter the same thing. And it's not a pleasant experience. Uh, to bring you up to speed, they have gone into the promised land. They had a tremendous victory at Jericho. They then went up to Ai, a smaller city that should not have been any problem to take, but they lost 36 men there in the battle because of hidden sin in the life of a guy named Achan. Achan had taken some silver and gold and a beautiful robe uh, from, the, uh, from the spoil at Jericho, but God had forbidden them to take anything, and Achan went ahead and did it. So because of his sin, they, uh, they lost 36 men. So Achan is judged. <clears throat> um, he is uh, called on the carpet. Uh, he is stoned by the nation of Israel. Uh, they then go back to Ai, being careful to obey what the Lord said. And because, and because of their repentance, uh, God gave Ai into their hand. So they go back and they take the city. And interestingly enough, God says, when you take Ai, you can take all the spoil. What they couldn't take at Jericho, they were now free to take. In Let's put it this way. These guys are on a roll. And as they are going in to take the promised land city by city, uh, the promised land, which is the land of Israel, by the way, you know, and, and it, just, it just continues to blow me away that here we are doing this study on Joshua, and every single day in the paper we're reading about this land. Uh, I, I read in the Dallas Morning News on the front page today that Arafat said that uh, people do not understand history. We were here before Abraham. <laughs> well, he's a liar. They were not there before Abraham. They are descendants of Abraham through Ishmael. But Ishmael was not the child of promise, and he knows that. Uh, the land was promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to their descendants. So this is pretty relevant stuff. The whole world is looking at Israel. Uh, guys have been handing me stuff on, on this. Uh, that's, that's just remarkable. Uh, here's a story out of the AP that Iraq has boost, uh, boosted suicide bomber payments. 
You know about this. Maybe you saw, I saw it on Fox last night. Not only are they now giving cash, um, $25,000 to the families, but uh, they're providing housing. They are also providing uh, education and scholarships for the siblings and, um, and an annuity for the family. It's remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. Um, anyway, this, this stuff is, um, you know, you know, the Bible is just, it, it, it's so applicable. If you want to understand what's happening over there, quite frankly, we're in a pretty good section of scripture that gives us perspective on what this is all about. Uh, the fight over there is about the land and Joshua is about them going into the promised land and taking the land. That's what the book is about. As they are going in to take the promised land on the West Bank, because they were on the east side of the Jordan River, have now crossed the west side. Jericho is on the west side. Ai is on the west side. Uh, Jerusalem is on the west side. All the stuff that's happening on the west bank of the Jordan. Uh, these, uh, this land at this time is inhabited, inhabited by all these ites. You got the Canaanites, you got the Amorites, you got the Jebusites, the Perizzites, you got them. They're all up in there, and they all have cities, and the cities are all walled. Now, here's what happens. Uh, they cross, well, we got to back up. Forty years before, they came out of Egypt, and God opened the Red Sea. Well, the word had spread about the Red Sea, because Rahab, Rahab the prostitute, when she took the two spies in, she basically did it because she wanted to know the great God who had opened the Red Sea 40 years prior. And she basically told those guys that when we heard about that, we were demoralized because we knew we couldn't stand up against you. Then, as they waited 40 years to go into the Promised Land, they finally crossed the Jordan River. And God parts that river the same way that he parted the Red Sea. Well, they heard about that. Uh, then they take Jericho, this massive fortress city, great walls. Boom, they fall flat as a pancake instantaneously by the power of God. Then they go up and take Ai and ambush them. So what are the rest of these guys thinking? They're thinking, we're in big trouble because how in the world can we stand against them? Now here's what Israel has done. Uh, here's what the people of Israel have done in Joshua 9. They have effectively, by taking Jericho and Ai, they have effectively split uh, the Canaanite nation in half, is what they've done. There was a real strategy here. So notice what happens, because you see, beginning with chapter 9, we're, we're introduced to a new section. It's what we call the Southern Campaign. For those of you that are military history buffs, they're, not, they're now going to start looking to the south. Um, Look at the response to what God had done for Israel in verses 1 and 2. Now, it came about when all the kings who were beyond the Jordan, in the hill country, and in the lowland, and on all the coast of the great sea up towards Lebanon, up to the north, the Hittite, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite, when they heard of it, See, it, it'd be like us saying, um, we're in Dallas. When they went in, when they went in to Fort Worth, 
And then on the other side, what's on the other side of Fort Worth? Weatherford. Weatherford. Is that over there? Yeah. Okay. I'm from California. Um, they heard about it, Weatherford. And, and then all the way up, Lebanon would be like Amarillo. It's up north. Um, the, and then they heard it down, down towards Waco and Austin, College Station. See, that's, that, that would be, in fact, that's bigger. That's bigger than Israel. Amarillo is way up there, you see, further beyond Lebanon. But that's kind of the idea that's in, in the mind here. When they heard of it, that they all gathered themselves together with one accord to fight with Joshua and with Israel. Now, what's significant about that is that those guys usually were fighting each other. But you see, suddenly you got an alliance because they know there's no world, no way in the world we can take these guys. So suddenly you got this coalition. Uh, it, it's amazing. Um, it's amazing how people will come together when they're uh, when they're in deep trouble, and that's what happened here. So uh, out of panic, all these nations who are usually going after each other decide to get a coalition going. But you got another group in verse 3. And this group takes a little different tact. And quite frankly, they were a lot smarter. Because you see, the guys in verses 1 and 2 actually think, let's get together, let's mount our forces, and let's fight these guys. The guys in verse 3 understand, if you can't beat them, join them. And here is where we are introduced to the, to the uh, people of Gibeon. Uh, Gibeon was a city that was six miles southwest uh, of Ai, and Gibeon was actually made up of four cities. Um, let's read what it has to say, because this is where it gets real interesting. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, remember, they're only six miles away, they also acted craftily and set out as envoys and took worn-out sacks on their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, and worn out and patched sandals on their feet, and worn out clothes on themselves, and all the bread of their provision was dry and had become crumbled. And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country. Now therefore make a covenant with us. And the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you are living within our land. How then shall we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, We are your servants. Then Joshua said to them, Well, who are you and where do you come from? And they said to him, Your servants have come from a very far country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard the report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who was at Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Take provisions in your hand for the journey, and go to meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Now then make a covenant with us. Second time they've asked that. Uh, this our bread was warm when we took it for our provisions out of our houses on the day that we left to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and, be has, and has become crumbled. And these wineskins, which were filled with new, uh, which were filled were new, and behold, they are torn, and these are clothes and our sandals are worn out because of the very long journey. These guys were slick. 
uh, these guys were smart. See, these guys, these you got to give them, you got to give them credit because they figured out there's no way we're going to take these guys. We don't have a chance of standing against these guys because Gibeon, number one, was not a big was not a big city, but but they, they understood even if they were the biggest city, they weren't going to take these guys. So instead of fighting them, they're going to con them, and they're going to deceive them, and they're going to try and enter into a covenant with them. Uh, what, what the men of Gibeon do is that they enter and, 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 and uh, uh, they come up with this plan of deceit to make a covenant uh, with Israel. Now, we've already read it, but, but just to break it down, in verses 4 and 5, they are deceitful in their appearance. In their appearance. I mean, uh, look at how they thought all this out. Uh, they, they, they make sure their sacks are worn out. They make sure that their wineskins are torn and mended. They make sure that their sandals uh, got a lot of miles on the tires, you know. Uh, even their bread is crumbly, moldy. Uh, look at verse 6. They're deceitful in their message. We have come from a far country. No, no they came just down the road, six miles, you see. Uh, note, note verse 7. Note the suspicion that this causes. Uh, among the guys of Israel. Uh, maybe you're living within our land. How shall we make a covenant with you? But, uh, then they present their evidence in verse 8, their deceitful evidence. Uh, well, we've come from a very far country because uh, now this is where they're very, they're, they're very good here. We've come from a very far country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard the report of him and all that he did in Egypt. And then they mention the two kings that they defeated. See, they don't say anything about crossing the Jordan. They don't say anything about Jericho. And they don't say anything about Ai because those were recent events. They refer back to events that had happened quite a while ago, giving the impression, yes, we heard about this. And because of those events way, way back, we heard and we started on our journey. They never mentioned what had just happened and what they fully knew about. These guys were good. These guys were very good. Uh, uh, th then in verses 11 and 13, again, they, they, you bring up the old bread and the tattered wineskins and all this other stuff. Uh, well, they were successful. Because look at what happens in verses 14 and 15. So the men of Israel took some of their provisions and did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation of the congregation swore an oath to them. Um, we have said that the book of Joshua is about two things. It's about the land and it's about leadership. There are a multitude of leadership lessons in the book of Joshua. As an example of leadership, uh, Joshua is at the head of the class. Uh, Joshua has done it right. 
Joshua has been very careful to obey the scriptures. Joshua has, uh, has, has stayed on target. But here is where Joshua, quite frankly, personally, makes his first slip. Because what he does is, he enters into a covenant with these guys that he never should have entered into. He has no business making a covenant because the clear direction that God had given to him was to destroy the people that were in the land. Uh, he didn't do that. Now, there is a very telling verse, which is verse 14. Uh, so Israel took some of their provisions, which you see in, in establishing a covenant, they would, they would eat together and they would have a meal together. So that was, that was the first step of establishing a covenant. But then the noteworthy thing is the next phrase. And they did not ask. They did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. Um, Joshua never intended for anything like this to happen. Uh, but what happened here was that the enemy was at work in, in Joshua's life as the enemy is always uh, at work in our lives. You see, there are two ways that the enemy works. Uh, there, there are two ways that he strategizes with us. Uh, number one, sometimes he'll just make a frontal, blatant attack. Uh, you, you know who's behind it. Um, you, you know what you're up against. You know you're in spiritual warfare. Uh, you're, you're just nailed. You're just blindsided. There, there's no question. There's no subtlety to it. It's just a, you're, you're just hit. Uh, that, that can happen. Uh, it can happen at work. It can happen in a marriage. It can happen with a kid. It can happen. You're just, uh, you're in the enemy's crosshairs, and you know that you are. Here's the second way. The second way he hits us is he hits us with a subtle and deceitful approach that on the surface appears to be legitimate. Those are the toughest attacks of all because they're harder to recognize, they're harder to discern. Um, and see, what happened here was that Joshua got conned Joshua got deceived, Joshua got manipulated, and uh, Joshua, quite frankly, was used. Um, this, this happens. And, and, and you know, what is very interesting is this can happen within um, the body of Christ. This can happen within the camp um, to us. Uh, what's the phrase? A clean glove often hides a dirty hand. Do you know that not everyone who comes in the name of Christ is, is really with Christ? Uh, we're told that there are false teachers, and there are false teachers. Uh, who was I talking to recently? I had a conversation with a, uh, with a businessman, and he basically told me, how did he put that? That if he saw, oh, I, yeah, if, if he saw, um, 
if you're in a conversation with someone and they're talking about doing business and, and the guy brings up pretty quickly that he's a Christian or is, is a little too quick on the trigger to uh, put a fish sign on his car or, y you know, you get the sense that this guy wants me to know that he goes to a particular church or he's a Christian. He said, I've been burned so many times that I've instructed my staff if, if that comes up a little too quick, we just back off. Because, you see, there are some who would seek to use the name of Christ. There are some who would seek uh, to use uh, the church. There are some who would seek to come in under the radar, just as the Gibeonites did. This still happens. And some of us have had experience firsthand with it, you see. Um, and, you know, that's a very devastating thing because you want to believe the best and you want to, uh, uh, you, gosh, you, you don't want to question people's motives. But uh, this is where we have to be very, very, very discerning. Uh, the full-fledged frontal attacks, if, if we come to church some Sunday and there are demonstrators out front with, uh, uh, with picket signs, and they're against us because of something we're for, well, that's pretty clear. We understand what that's about. But it's the subtle approaches. It's, it's the ones that come in under the radar that are the ones that we really have to watch. And that's where we need discernment. Um, Joshua was a discerning man. Joshua had a good heart. Joshua was very careful to obey the word of God. But you know what? He got taken. He got schnockered in this deal. Because verse 14 is very clear, he did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. See, here's, here's what happens, is that sometimes what happens is we just, we just flat forget the Lord. We start running our own, on our own instincts. We start running on, on our experience. You know, we, hey, we're not the, this isn't the first time we've been around the block. Um, you, you know, quite frankly... Quite frankly, uh, one of the things that happens inevitably is that I think the enemy will use flattery. He will use someone who is winsome and someone who is good with words. And we all kind of like some strokes here and there. And they will use that in order to put our defenses down and take us in. Uh, Joshua made two critical mistakes here. And uh, you've probably made the same mistakes. I can guarantee you I've made them. We've all made them. Uh, here's his first mistake. Uh, Joshua didn't pray. He didn't pray. Interesting, wasn't it, that as we started off tonight, we mentioned uh, the group of guys that meet for prayer at 620. That's a good thing. Um, Joshua was a praying man. If you look at Joshua chapter 7, uh, verses 6 and 7, we see him praying. This is when the situation happened with Achan. He immediately went on his face. He tore his clothes, fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, both he and the elders. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God. See, he's, he's a man of prayer. He he's a guy that knows where his source is. He's a guy that understands who his Lord and who his master is. Uh, he is a praying man. But in this critical situation... He got taken in. It's sort of like, um, uh, 
It's sort of like that section in Scripture where it talks about Moses. And do you remember that section where Moses was, uh, had been adopted by Pharaoh? And the Scripture talks about the, the, the fact that as he was nearing the age of 40, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his Jewish brethren. What did Moses do? Well, the Scripture says that he stepped in and defended his Jewish brethren and killed the Egyptian. But as Stephen recounts this for us in Acts, what is it, 7? What he says is, is that, so Moses looked, is that Acts 7 or is it back in Exodus? Anyway. All right, it is Acts 7. But the passage in Acts, anyway, let's go with Acts 7. Because I'm not going to cross this guy. And, and I think he's right. What Stephen says is, is that he looked this way and that way. Years ago, a long time ago, I, I heard a tape that Chuck did on that. And Chuck made the observation about Moses. He looked this way and he looked that way, but he never looked that way. He never looked up. See, that's what you tend to do, and that's what I tend to do. We take in the information, we're processing, we're working off our experience, and see, and, and you might even have some counsel. Joshua wasn't here by himself. Joshua had some other guys with him. And they all got conned. And they all got taken. Uh, why? Very simple thing. They didn't pray. Um, uh, prayer is, uh, you know, prayer is so critical and prayer is so foundational that sometimes we forget about it. I mean, we, we know it's important, we know it's true, but, but, but you see, uh, you, you know what this is? This, this is what I call a flesh act. It, it, instead of being led by the Spirit, he was led just by his flesh. He, he, he was just working off human perceptions, and, and, and sometimes in the you know, a decision is called for. Sometimes we're taken off guard. I, don't, I think Joshua and these other men of Israel, they were probably shocked to see these guys come into camp. They, they didn't anticipate that. Number one, it took a lot of guts to come into the camp. A lot of guts. Um, Louis L'Amour. Any of you guys read Louis L'Amour? Sure, yeah. yeah, some godly men in here. Louis L'Amour would write those good old Western stories about uh, good guys and bad guys, and there was always a, you know, a situation where the good guy had to take a stand, and uh, uh, one of his Sackett uh, novels, it, it, it tells a story where uh, uh, some, some children had been stolen by the Indians, by the Apaches. And uh, one of the things that the Apaches respected was fearlessness. So this Sackett, I think it was Nolan Sackett, what he did was he knew there was no way he could get those kids out of that camp. I mean, it's just teeming with braves and, you know, I mean, he's outnumbered one to, you know, 500. So what did he do? He just rode right into the middle of the camp. And he says, thank you for taking care of the children for me. <laughs> and you know what they did? They gave him the kids and they let him go because they admired his bravery and they admired his courage. If he had a flinched, if he had a blinked, they would have had him on a rack. 
see. These guys had some guts, and these guys had some courage, and therein was part of the deception. Joshua, this was totally unexpected. Um, you know, things come up. You, things come up sometimes on a daily basis. And see, this is where, this is where the concept of prayer has to be integrated. It, it, it's not just an act, but it's an attitude. How in the world can we follow what Paul said when Paul said, you remember this one? He said, pray without what? Well, yeah, you know, when we hear that, we go, oh, come on. Give me, I mean, come on. Give me a break. I mean, I get a real job. How in the world can you pray without ceasing? What, what is that all about? Uh, you know what it is? It's always having, the, the line is always open. It's always open. That's what it is. Uh, you, you never hit end on your cell phone. It's always sent. It's always sent. You see, it, it, prayer is not just uh, prayer in the morning, you know, by yourself in your bedroom or in your living room or something. But it should, it, see, it's designed to be something that we just, it's how we live our lives. It's 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 a relationship. Um, that that's how it's designed to be. It, it is an ongoing sense of the presence of God, and an ongoing sense of His abil- availability, and an ongoing sense on our part that at every moment we need Him. So as you're going through the day, uh, as you're driving down the road, as you're in a situation, you 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 know we, you don't always have time to get out on your knees and and so what do you do? It's it's an attitude. You know, Lord, I need your wisdom here. Lord, it's it's see it's we can't afford to forget him. It's an attitude where he's always on the front burner. You say. We all, we all face situations in our leadership uh, responsibilities. And we've all got different leadership responsibilities. And as we walk through these different leadership responsibilities, we're going to encounter different things that come our way. Uh, sometimes the most obvious thing is the thing we forget. That's exactly what happened to Joshua. Guy with a great heart, guy on a mission, guy whose character was impeccable, He's, he's, he's kind of taken aback by these guys coming in, and before you know it, he's made, and was he suspicious? Yeah. Now, now, now there's a principle. Because you see, they're asking questions earlier on. So, so see, no, no verse eight. They say, the men of Israel say to the Hivites, perhaps you're living within our land. See, they hit it. They hit it. The first thing out of their mouth, they hit it. You know what that tells me? If you're a man who's walking with Christ, don't ignore your instincts. If you've got a question, if there's something not right in your spirit, then don't. If you're a guy that, that loves Christ and you're in the Word and, and you're in relationship and the Spirit of God lives within you, and as you're going about work or you're going about negotiations or you're going, whatever you're going about, if there's a check, and why do we always learn this the hard way? 
Man, we could go around the night and we could tell, each guy could tell story after story after story after story. You see? And man, if we could go back and do it again. See, if Joshua could go back and do it again. Their first, the first words out of their mouths were, what if you guys are living in our land? Like six miles down the road. I mean, first, first thing in their heart, first thing they sensed. And they didn't listen to it. <clears throat> you know, we have natural instincts. But I'm going to tell you something. As we walk with Christ, we develop uh, uh, a sixth sense. And it comes from a combination of the Word of God and the Spirit of God. You know, don't you in the morning as you get going, you're starting your day, maybe you're driving down the road, don't you say, Lord, would you lead me today? You probably do. If you don't, that's where you start. You see? Lord, I need your leadership today. I need you to be my shepherd today. I need you to navigate me today through the things I'm going to face. Things I don't know about, but you know about every circumstance. I need your wisdom. I need your leadership. All right? Well, he'll lead you. And one of the ways he leads us is, is through that sixth sense, through that instinct. So if you've got a check, listen to that. Just listen to it. Sometimes, uh, maybe this, maybe you guys have had this experience. Sometimes he'll use your wife to provide the check. Anyone ever had that happen? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I see those hands all over the room. What's that? Oh yeah, yeah. See that's, and and, and you know because because God has given us a partner, and if you've got a wife that is uh, a godly woman and in the scriptures and yielded to the Spirit of God, I mean, gosh, what a, what a great partner to walk through life with. And isn't it amazing how God, how these, these wives that he gives us, how they have these, they got this kind of this, this spiritual radar thing. And a lot, I mean, they'll see stuff and they'll sense it before you do. You ever had that happen? Don't give me those blank looks. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. See, that's, that's a gift from God. Uh, sometimes if I don't get it, see, God will use Mary to kind of raise that sick. It'll be her instinct sometimes. Uh, I, I, I'm really... Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to follow this. If, you, you know what? Scripture says that if, if you can't do something out of faith, to you it's sin. And if you've got a check in your heart, don't you move ahead. See, here was a good man. Here was a godly man that forgot that principle. Here's the second thing. Here's a second error. And once again... We, we, we all have made it. Joshua did not consult the word. Number one, he failed to pray. Number two, he failed to consult the word of God. Now, the interesting thing about Joshua is this. Joshua had an absolute direct line to God on any issue. 
any issue. Um, this was quite a thing that he had. I, I'm referencing here uh, Numbers 27. You might want to turn over there. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. So you want to go back a couple of books if you're, if you're new to your, to your Bible. Uh, Numbers 27, and I'm going to read from the Amplified Version here, okay? Then the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand upon him. Now this goes way back to when Joshua was an apprentice under Moses. It says, And set him before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and give him a charge in their sight. And put some of your honor and authority upon him, that all the congregation of the Israelites may obey him. He shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him before the Lord by the judgment of the Urim. And the Amplified then says, one of two articles in the priest's breastplate worn when asking counsel of the Lord for the people. At Joshua's word, the people shall go out and come in, both he and all the Israelite congregation with him. This concept in the Old Testament of the Urim and the Thummim was a remarkable concept because we're not exactly clear on all the specifics of how it worked. But here's what the New Bible Dictionary says about it. I mean, it's, this is remarkable stuff. It says, it has been suggested that the Urim and the Thummim were two flat objects. One side of each was called Urim. And when both displayed this side, the answer was negative. The other side was Thummim, from the Hebrew to be perfect, and a complete Thummim meant yes, one Urim and one Thummim meant no reply. So they would consult these two um, flat objects, perhaps stone-like. So Joshua could go right to the Lord. David did this. You know, David would have an issue. He'd go right to the, the Urim and the Thummim. Wouldn't you like to have a Urim and a Thummim? And however it came out, that was your answer from the Lord. Uh, you know what? You, you've, you've got that. And so do I. Turn over, if you would, to 2 Timothy 3.16. This is a foundational verse about the uh, character of the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is inspired by God, or literally, all Scripture is God-breathed. Um, technically, all Scripture is, uh, is breathed out by God. He, God didn't inhale, God exhaled. That's where the Scripture comes from. It's the breath of God. All Scripture, except for the writings of Paul, is inspired by God. Have you ever heard that? Well, you know, 
You know what's amazing? Is that there were churches this past Sunday that had a lot of people in them. And the preacher gets up, and he's preaching about Easter, and he's preaching about the resurrection. Uh, I'll never forget when we lived in Little Rock, there was a, uh, on the Saturday prior to Easter, in the church page, they interviewed uh, six prominent pastors in Little Rock and asked them, the question was, what is the meaning of Easter? And you know what every, every one of the six said? In essence, you could boil it down to, well, Easter is about new beginnings. Easter is about resurrection. But no, it's, not a, it's not a physical, literal resurrection. That's what they all said. It's not a literal, physical resurrection. Jesus really didn't come out of the tomb. That's what they all said. Yeah, he did. He certainly did. You see, what, what, what the Scripture clearly taught, they didn't accept. Uh, all Scripture is inspired by God, except for the part that says Jesus rose from the dead. You know, you've got Christian colleges, you've got Christian churches, you've got Christian seminaries. All Scripture is inspired by God, except the section that says Jonah was a literal person. All scriptures inspired by God, except the fact that Adam and Eve were historical figures. Isn't that amazing? They, they, they just keep carving up the, all scripture. I think Jesus said something about every jot and tittle. Uh, for us, you know what that is? That's every comma and apostrophe. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Um, the, the word there, adequate, has the idea of completely furnished. Completely furnished. Uh, remember back when you first got married? Remember your first little apartment? I, I remember uh, we, we, uh, Mary and I met in Oregon. We got married in Atlanta. We honeymooned in Florida. We moved into our first little apartment in Southern California. <laughs> and uh, we moved in, and it didn't take us long because there wasn't a whole lot to move in. We'd go to my folks' place, and it was completely furnished. We'd go to uh, her parents' place. It was completely furnished. You went to our place? Gosh, you remember those days, don't you? I mean, you just barely... I mean, you got a couple chairs and a card table, and I mean, that's, you know, not much more than that, uh, and that's all right. I mean, you were fine, uh, but, but you see, when we're young and when we're starting out, one of the things that a wife looks forward to, one of the things a wife wants is not only a house, but she wants a house that's completely furnished, complete. We don't give a rip about that stuff. But you see, it's a big deal to them. See, when it says, notice, notice what the Scripture does for us. All Scripture is profitable for teaching. All Scripture. There's not a sect. See, that, that's why we stand on the whole Bible. That's why uh, J. Vernon McGee taught through the whole Bible. And he's still on the radio. He, he's gone on to be with the Lord. But they still play 
They still play those radio messages. Why? Because all Scripture, Leviticus, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Philemon, Obadiah, every part of the Word of God is inspired by God. Let me tell you something. Some of you guys have, in your Bibles, in fact, it'll say on the edge, words of Christ in red. Let me tell you something. Your whole Bible ought to be in red. That whole thing ought to be printed in red. If you're going to put the Word of Christ in red, you better put the whole thing in red because it all is the Word of Christ. If you don't understand that, you don't understand the source of this book and the accuracy of this book. Um, so what do we do? What do we do when, when we've got issues before us, when we've got decisions before us? Well, here's the first, and see, and, and see, we can go right by these things because they're so basic. Yeah, that's exactly right. See, we never get past this point. We never get past the need of consistent prayer. We never get past the need of turning to the Scriptures. Everything I need for any issue that is in my life is in this book. Did you catch that? All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So whatever I need is in this book. There are principles in this book. Now, does that mean that I will get, as I pray, that I'll get an immediate answer? No, not necessarily. Does it mean that as uh, I'm struggling with an issue and trying to make a decision that I go into this book, that I'll get immediate clarity and know what the decision should be? No, it doesn't mean that. But what it means is, is that as I go to the Lord in prayer, and as I go to His Word at the right moment and at the right time, and, through, and it can be, and you know, God uses the Word in different ways. He's given teachers and preachers in the church to help me understand the Word. Um, he's given me prayer to seek his counsel and to ask him to show me and to lead me. He's given me other believers. Uh, we mentioned this a few weeks ago. That in an abundant, Proverbs says, in an abundance of counselors, there's victory. So if I've got an issue, it makes sense for me to go to some other guys. Hey, w w tell me about it. What do, what do you think about this? You see any red flags here? See, that's how we discern the will of God. But it runs on the twin tracks of prayer and Scripture, and you will never get away from those twin tracks, ever. Those are the rails on which we run. And, and for many of us, this has been a part of our lives now for so long, and we're so familiar with it, that at critical times, we tend to forget it. Uh, every adequate, adequate... It says that the man of God may be adequate, completely furnished. When you're completely furnished, you're able to meet every demand. There's nothing you're missing. Now, where does that come from? It comes from the Scriptures. Um, 
Uh, and, and, you know, sometimes what has to happen is that we need to have a situation like what happened with the Gibeonites to remind us. Because we drift and we get familiar. And, and quite frankly, we get a little overconfident. And we've got some uh, years now under our belt. We've got some miles on our Michelins. You know, we're not rookies. And, we, and, and sometimes we start to trust our instincts you know, a little too much. Uh, if, uh, don't, don't, I, I want to be unclear here. If you've got a hesitation, hesitate. I, I'd listen to that hesitation. And then you go to the Lord in prayer, and then you go to the scriptures, and you talk, start talking to some other guys that are seeking the counsel of the Lord. You can't go wrong in a situation like that. Um, I have been uh, reading again, as I often do. Um, I, I have to say... There's this guy, Thomas Watson, is, is becoming one of my all-time favorites. Um, Mary right now is reading C.H. Uh, Spurgeon's uh, book called The Soul Winner. And uh, she'll read it, and about every few minutes, she just shakes her head. She says, that's amazing. That's, that's just amazing. Uh, some, of these, some of these guys that have gone before, uh, they really knew God. And they really knew the scriptures. Uh, Watson is one of these guys. Uh, I'm going to get to him in just a minute. Let, let me pull out two lessons, if I can. I think from this situation that Joshua had with, with the Gibeonites, and um, let's, go back to, let, let's go back to the text, because let's go back to Joshua 9. And let's, let's read this text because it, it's amazing the consequences that came out of a decision that was made in, in haste. Um, and see if this doesn't sync with your personal experience at some point along uh, your personal trail. Um, we've already seen that they made a covenant with them. Verse 16, And it came about at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them, that they heard that they were neighbors and that they were living within their land. Then the sons of Israel set out and came to their cities on the third day. Um, now their cities were Gibeon and Kephira and Baroth and Kiriath-Jerim. And the sons of Israel did not strike them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, of, by the Lord God of Israel. And the whole congregation then grumbled against the leaders. Now, see, that had happened before with Moses. That had never happened with Joshua. And all the leaders, but all the leaders said to the whole congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Now we cannot touch them. This we will do to them, even let them live, lest wrath be upon us for the oath which we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, let them live. So they became hewers of wood and drawers of water for the whole congregation, just as the leaders had spoken to them. Uh, you, you know what's interesting about this? Um, the thing which the Gibeonites were trying to avoid, in a sense, uh, they became. Uh, they became slaves. Um, verse 22, Then Joshua called for them and spoke to them, saying, Why have you deceived us, saying, We are very far from you, when you are living within our land? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and you shall never cease being slaves, both hewers of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. So they answered Joshua and said, 
because it was certainly told your servants that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land. See, these guys knew the word of God. Isn't that amazing? They knew what God had told Moses. Because we knew the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. Therefore, we feared greatly for our lives because of you and now have done this thing. And now, behold, we are in your hands. Do as it seems good and right in your sight to do to us. Thus he did to them and delivered them from the hands of the sons of Israel, and they did not kill them. And Joshua made them that day hewers of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place which he would choose. All right, here are two, here are two lessons from his encounter, Joshua's encounter with the Gibeonites. Here's number one. <coughs> Certain decisions have negative consequences that must be lived with. I'll give it to you one more time. Certain decisions have negative consequences that must be lived with. After three days, Joshua finds out that they're not from a foreign land. Now, according to Exodus 23, verse 32, Israel could not make covenants with nations in the promised land. But they did. Exodus 7, verse 2, commands Israel to destroy the nations. But Joshua could not kill the Gibeonites because he had made an oath in the name of the Lord. Francis Schaeffer says this, and this was completely right with God. Once the oath was made, God expected the people to keep it. And Joshua did. Interestingly enough, many years later, however, the oath was broken. In the days of David, there was a three-year famine, and David asked the Lord why. The Lord answered, it is for Saul and for his bloody house, because he slew the Gibeonites. That's 2 Samuel 21.1. When Saul killed the Gibeonites, thereby transgressing the oath made by Joshua about 400 years before, God responded, this is serious, Saul broke an oath made in my name, and I hold him accountable. Second Samuel twenty-one-one. Uh, they were not to have made a covenant. They were to have destroyed the people in the land. <clears throat> they were deceived, made a covenant. Joshua, when the people said, "Let's kill these guys," Joshua said, "We have made an oath. We have made a covenant." We can't kill them, and God honored that. Peter says this. Peter says, not returning evil for evil. This is 1 Peter 3. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. Sometimes when we're deceived, sometimes when we're manipulated, sometimes when we're taken advantage of, we think that gives us an out to act accordingly to the way we have been treated. That's not how it works. Have you been manipulated? Have you been taken advantage of? Has someone uh, uh, done you in? Has someone used you? Uh, have you given your word? Then you know what? Honor your word. Now, Fred. Sure. Yeah. All right. 
Yeah. Yeah. Right. I'd, I'd say that's a good question. Someone else have a question? <laughs> David, did you have a question at all? Okay. I need someone to ask another question. That's too practical. You know what I would say? I would say, I, I, I would say there are two issues here. One is, is how we handle unbelievers. All right? Because I think the way we handle unbelievers versus believers, we've we got some different issues. If, if a believer is deceptive, if a deliver, believer is manip- if, if a believer is in sin and doing a, then, then there are clear mandates in the scripture how we are to respond to a brother who is in sin. We, we, I don't think we just let them get away with it. Uh, you've got Matthew 18, you've got Galatians 6, 1. Um, uh, okay, 2 Timothy 4, 2. I'm not sure what that says, but... Once again, you, remind me. Okay. Yeah, if there's sin in the body, we've got to respond to it, and we just don't let it go. That's why you have church discipline. I think we talked about that last week, didn't we? Yeah, we did talk about that last week, about the whole issue of a brother's in sin, which you, which, that process, because you want to restore your brother. The Gibeonites, to me, represent unbelievers. And so I think the way that we respond in situations when an unbeliever doesn't keep his word, I think we take the higher road and we show the message of the gospel and we honor our word and we honor our commitment. That's my take on it. Does that make some sense? Okay. Uh, Sometimes when you do that, there are long-term consequences. And and we're, we're about out of time. You guys go another seven minutes? Good. Uh, what, what, what happened was, as a result of his covenant with the Gibeonites, this is where it gets real practical. This basically became a thorn in his flesh. Uh, this was an affliction that was not going away. This is where I, I refer to Thomas Watson. Um, Watson had a big view of God, and he had a big view of the Scripture. And it was Thomas Watson that said, Whoever brings an affliction, it is God that sends it. Now, at first, that might grate on you. But in the context, uh, Watson was referring to Job. And uh, Chuck just went through this section where Job lost everything. It was all taken away from him. In in Job 1, uh, Job tears his clothes, and he says, uh, the Lord gives... And what? The Lord takes away. Notice that he didn't say the Lord gives and Satan takes away. Now, but wait a minute. Who was it? Who was it that had asked permission to take that away? And who did it? Satan. But you see, whoever brings an affliction, it is God that sends it. See, Satan was a tool in God's hand to test Job and to show what his heart really was and to show what it really contained. Now, in his book, The Godly Man's Picture, Watson Watson has some things to say about affliction that might ring a bell with some of you guys and what you're dealing with right now. 
He says, we must be patient when God inflicts any evil upon us. Now, what he means by that is like Job's situation, where Satan was the instrument that brought the evil, but ultimately Satan was sent from God, not making, God was not the author of evil, but God was using Satan's uh, methods in order to test and in order to refine the heart of Job. He makes a couple of points. Number one, God sometimes lays heavy affliction on his people. Psalm 38, 2 says, Thy hand is sore upon me. The Hebrew word for afflicted signifies to be melted. God seems often to melt his people in a furnace. Sometimes God lays various afflictions on the saints. Uh, Job 9, 17 says, He multiplies my wounds. As we have various ways of sinning, so the Lord has various ways of afflicting. Some he deprives of their estates. Others he chains to a sick bed. Others he confines to a prison. God has various arrows in his quiver which he shoots. Sometimes God lets the affliction lie for a long time. There is no more any prophet Neither is there among us any that knows how long, Psalm 74, 9 says. As it is with diseases, some are chronic and linger and hang about the body several years on end, so it is with afflictions. The Lord is pleased to exercise many of his precious ones with chronic afflictions, which they suffer for a long time. Now in all these cases, it becomes the saints to rest patiently in the will of God. The Greek word for patient is a metaphor and alludes to one who stands invincibly under a burden. This is the right notion of patience. When we bear affliction invincibly without fainting or fretting. The test of a pilot is seen in a storm. So the test of a Christian is seen in affliction. That man has the right art of navigation who, when the stormy winds blow from heaven, steers the ship of his soul wisely, and does not dash upon the rock of impatience. A Christian should always maintain decorum, not behaving himself in an unseemly manner or disguising himself with intemperate passion when the hand of God lie upon him. Patience adorns suffering. Affliction in Scripture is compared to a net. About four more sentences here. Some have escaped the devil's net, yet the Lord allows them to be taken in the net of affliction. But they must not be as a wild bull in a net, as Isaiah 51.20 says, kicking and flinging against their maker, but lie patiently till God breaks the net and makes a way for their escape. That's the Christian life. There are afflictions that don't go away. Sometimes the afflictions are the result of circumstances. Sometimes the afflictions are the result of bad decisions and choices that we have made, as were the Gibeonites in the life of Israel and the life of Joshua from here on out. But you know what encourages me, guys? Because I can certainly relate to Joshua in Joshua chapter 9. Uh, gosh, how many decisions have I made 
where quite frankly, I didn't pray. I, I, I didn't look at the word. I just made a snap judgment, and I didn't listen to my first instinct. How many times have I done that? How many times have you done that? And how many times have we screwed up, and how many times have we made errors? Quite a few. And you know what? We'll do it again. Now, let me give you the good news. You know what the good news is? God is sovereign over my screw-ups. Does that take a load off or what? God is sovereign over my errors. God is sovereign over my bad decisions. And here's the thing to me that ties it all up. And I keep going back to this time and time again. And if you've been here, you know, this, what, what is this, April? You know, we've, it's, we, we've been doing this for a year now. In fact, we should add a cake tonight. Sorry. If you've been here consistently, you know that we often wind up in Romans 8.28. Because you know it's the only smart place to wind up. For we know that God causes what? All things. Would that include a covenant with the Gibeonites? Would that include a bad decision on your part? Would that include a bad uh, choice on a business partner? Would that include a bad this? Would it, would it include everything? Yeah. For we know that God causes all things to work together for good. doesn't say all things are good. It says he causes them all my mistakes, all my screw-ups, all my bad choices when I didn't consult the Word. He causes all things to work together for good those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That's how we live with ourselves. That's how we don't get bound to our past. Uh, last week we talked about failure. Uh, here was a failure. But God takes those things and God uses them and God weaves them in his plan and he actually brings good. And he'll take me to the next experience, I'll learn from it, and he'll give me success. I'm not finished. Uh, I'm just wiser. Anybody say amen to that? Amen. Any of you guys experience this? No. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's bow our heads. Lord, we thank you for this very practical reminder. We, uh, we never get wise enough where we're beyond prayer. We never get wise enough where we are beyond consulting the scriptures. And we know that's where wisdom comes from. So, Father, I pray for each of us right now where we are, on our individual paths of life, on our individual trails. We're, some of us are going to encounter some things this week that will not be unlike what he encountered with the Gibeonites. Uh, Something's going to come up for some of us that's totally out of the blue, that's totally out of left field, that on the surface might look like a good thing, but it's not. Would you give us wisdom by your Spirit when we encounter something like this in the next few days, if indeed it happens, would you bring to mind this principle and this passage? And then would you give us the wisdom to apply it and to use it?
and to gain experience and wisdom from it. Lord, thank you that uh, you never give up on us. Thank you that you use these things uh, to refine us. And, and some of us, Lord, are living with long-term consequences right now. Some of us on a daily basis are living with uh, some really tough consequences. We're living with some really hard afflictions. But Father, give us, give us patience. Lord, that, that, that is so foreign to us. We chafe at that. We want things changed. We want things different. And we want it tonight. And the thought that we would have to wait for a prolonged period discourages us. But Father, give us wisdom to trust you in your timing. Give us, give us trusting hearts that no good thing do you withhold from those who walk uprightly. And at the right time, we will see good come into our lives. In the meantime, give us the patience that is so hard for us, Lord, to manufacture in our own hearts. By your Spirit, implant it in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, gentlemen. Have a good week. We'll see you Wednesday.